Well, if you have your Bibles, if you would open to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 to chapter 4, verse 7. I'm going to do something different this morning. We usually um, make our way through a passage of Scripture. We exposit the Word of God, and we peer into the Scriptures to, to discern and discover the, God's meaning behind the text. But we're at a portion of Scripture where it is so rich, so, um, so heart-satisfying. I mean, it is so important in terms of our relationship with God that especially with our time being pressed this morning because of the important remembrance of Christ through communion, we want to pause from our verse-by-verse study and take a topical look at our adoption as sons and God as our Father. So that is the theme uh, which we will focus our attention uh, on during our, stu- during our sermon this morning. But it is related to Galatians 3, 24 through chapter 4, verse 7. So we want to read this text together. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. But he is under guardians and managers under the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Please be seated. It was a few months ago, we were contacted by our uh, foster adopt agency that a local Christian uh, radio program would like to uh, interview Cern and I about our experience in foster, fostering and, and adopting our, our son, Ethan. And uh, uh, we, we, of course, agreed, and the day of the interview came. And, you know, my opinion of this broadcast radio program is that, by and large, 
and somewhat pragmatic. It's catering to a wide audience beyond the Christian audience. And at times I've been grieved by their lack of consistency and fidelity to the word of God. So in rehearsing in my own mind how I will answer questions, I want to make a clear point, make, make it clear our motivation for adopting this child, that we were enemies of God, that we are not all God's children, that we were separated from God, we were sinners through and through, and God in love adopted us by grace through faith, and that is and that was our motivation behind uh, the foster and, and, and adopting our, uh, our, our boy. I, I knew it would be a little controversial, but I wanted to make that clear. And so in the midst of the interview, I had the opportunity to share that. How uh, we are all enemies of God. We are not by birth children of God. Now, it could be my insecurity. It could be my pride. But I sensed over the telephone, his heart closing, <laughs> and I sensed him um, detracting away from interviewing me and more towards my wife. And uh, subsequently, that interview was on their website, uh, online to be heard. A few days later, it was removed from their website. Now, I don't know why they, would, they removed that uh, interview from their uh, webpage, but if it was my pure guess, it would be because um, I proposed this notion that we are by nature enemies of God. We are not God's children by birth. Um, this is a common, pervasive view in the world, and sad to say, even in many churches. This is the uh, Oprah Winfrey School of Theology. Right? This is the mindset of the universal fatherhood of God, that God is the father of everyone in the world, and therefore we are all brothers and sisters. The universal brotherhood of all mankind. That is a liberal teaching, that is an idea that is not found in the scriptures, that is not biblical whatsoever. God is our creator, but he is not. Our Father. Now, the conservative wing of the Christian community, they are reacting to this liberal idea of the universal fatherhood of God and reacting to this, um, this false idea. They emphasize uh, God as judge, God as our king, our master, God who condemns sin. God who is transcendent, who is thrice holy. We have a master-slave relationship, and that is the essence of our relationship with God in reacting to this liberal idea. Um, what does the Bible say concerning the world's relationship with God and our newfound relationship with God through Jesus Christ we find that what the Bible says is so much more beautiful. It's so much more wonderful. It, it causes your heart to skip a beat. It causes one to lose one's breath. 
it causes one to, for a moment, at the very least, to forget oneself, to forget one's surroundings, because the idea of this is so, so, it gives a heart wound. It, it melts our hearts. The Bible teaches us, it's clear, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sins in which we once walked. We followed the course of this world. It wasn't just a passive way we were sinners. We were actively engaged in this deadness, this separation from God. We were not just separated from God. We were walking. We were running away from God. We were seeking to be far away from God as was possible because of our sins. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And then verse 4, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were children separated from God destined for God's condemnation like the rest of the world. Um, Jesus, in his interchange with the Pharisees, particularly identifies the father of this world, the, God, the father of all who are apart from Christ. And he, he says in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So the only rightful father that can lay a claim on this world is Satan himself. And the proof of that is everyone in this world, outside of Christ, they bear in their lives a stark resemblance of their father, for they are filled with works of iniquity. They're filled with slander, filled with all manner of evil, wickedness, sin, deception, because they are like their father, the devil himself. Sinclair Ferguson has said, there could be no more serious delusion for us to suffer than that we are naturally God's children. It is, he's, I'm paraphrasing, one of the greatest delusions that people have is that they are God's children, that God is their father. Um, that is the foundational message of the gospel. If someone doesn't agree or believe with that truth of the gospel, you cannot, you should not go to point two of the gospel because that's the foundation of the gospel, that we are not God's children and that we need to become God's children. It is not something that we are born with. It is this truth that we need to be born again. We need a rebirth. We need regeneration. Because in our first birth, we're born as enemies of God. 
We are born as children of Satan, children of wrath. We are born dead in trespass. And there is nothing we can do to earn our way, achieve our way, work our way uh, into God's family. It's the extrapolation of last week's illustration about Kobe Bryant and Jim Buss. Jim Buss is Jerry Buss's son. So though he had done nothing whatsoever, he's not, he has never made a shot, never rebounded, had an assist. He makes a decision for the next coach, the Lakers, and he inherits a portion of the team. Here's Kobe Bryant. After all that he has done, he inherits nothing. He has no say on the next coach of the Lakers. And if Kobe Bryant were to go to Jerry Buss, then how many more points do I need to score for me to have a say concerning this organization? How many more rebounds must I get for me to be part of your family? How many more rings do I need to win for me to have your name? Um, the answer is, you can't. It is not possible. Entrance into our family is not earned, gained, or achieved. It is by birth. Likewise with God's family. In John chapter 3, here is this man named Nicodemus. He is, um, he is a, a Pharisee. He is a man with every possible natural advantage. He is a Jew, a man who had studied and intimately knew the promises of God, the word of God. Because he was a Pharisee, he was a man who was supremely devoted and dedicated to religious piety. He illustrates all that is possible with the human flesh. He embodies what a man can do apart from Christ in terms of outward righteousness. But in terms of God, he is no less than an enemy of God. He is separated from God. He is not a child of God. Nothing he can do. No amount of prayers, fasting, or giving, or religious rituals can earn his way into God's family. It is impossible. And Nicodemus, by God's grace, understands this. He, as a Pharisee, is somebody on the inside, right? He's on the inside, and he sees, he looks, and he sees the bankruptcy, the emptiness, the vanity of their works righteousness, right? People on the outside are enamored, right, by the lights, right, by the sleight of hand, the dog and pony show that goes on. Outward righteousness, he's on the inside, and he sees the filth the bankruptcy, the, the, the vanity, the pride, the spiritual ego that is behind all their works, and he knows it's not enough. Therefore, when he hears Jesus, when he, is, when he sees him, he goes to him. And as he approached Jesus, um, there is no question here. Jesus answers his question. He knows. I mean, he knows what Nicodemus' question is. He answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So by the answer, we know what the question is. The question is, Jesus, we know you're from God. We know you're from the Father, for no one can do these things unless he is sent from the Father. 
My question is, how can I see God's kingdom? And then Jesus says again, unless you are born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the question is, I, I don't want to be a, just a spectator of God's kingdom. Jesus, I want to know, how can I enter into God's kingdom? How can I be a member of God's family? Our Lord's answer is uh, definitive. Right. Um, unless one is born again, he cannot see God's kingdom. He cannot enter God's kingdom. He must be born again, not by water, but by the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is born is spirit. The person must be born again by the Holy Spirit. External outward deeds has no effect, has no transformative power to allow one to enter God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit must do the work and you must be born, born again in the inner man. Um, John had talked about this uh, in chapter one, verse 12, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the authority, the power to become a child of God. It is through faith. It is through receiving Jesus. It is through faith in the Son of Man that one has received this privilege, this new status, this new position, new identity as a child of the Father. Paul understands this truth, this sonship, this adoption. And in the epistles, he's the only one who speaks of adoption. He's the only one. Uh, this word adoption is a compound word in the Greek, huothesia. The first word is huios, it's son. Thesia is to be placed, to be placed as a son. That's the literal rendering here. Paul used this word five times in his epistles. Galatians, Ephesians, and Romans. For Paul, he spoke of justification. We know this. He spoke of regeneration. He spoke of redemption, glorification. But for Paul, uniquely for Paul, adoption was a central metaphor for understanding our relationship with God. It was not just a legal forensic transaction of God forgiving us of our sins and imputing us Christ's righteousness, of God taking us to heaven to be with him forever. It's not just a forensic reality that has occurred for us, not just our status, not just our position, but for Paul, it was more richer. Regeneration, justification, redemption, but also adoption. There is a change in our relationship with God. There is a, I mean, I think this is what makes um, the new covenant so much better. Uh, you, you do a concordance search in the Old Testament of father, 
of writers in the Old Testament addressing God as Father, and it's exceedingly rare in the Old Testament. You'd be surprised in, in the Psalms, you would find only three times you will find Father, right? And only one time God speaks of himself as a father to people. And in that text, in Psalm 68, is is a father to the fatherless. Outside of the minor prophets and some major prophets that point towards the kingdom, addressing God as father is exceedingly rare in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's found over 200 separate times. 200 separate times in the New Testament. For the New Testament writers, and especially Paul, uh, this was... Uh, this beautiful gift that God has given to believers. For Paul, this was the central metaphor for Christians. John Murray said adoption is the apex of redemptive grace and privilege. Ritterboss said undoubtedly adoption as sons can be put on a level and mentioned in one breath with justification. St. Clair Ferguson in his book, Children of the Living God, I read this book this week, was so blessed. And he said, sonship is everything. It is the goal of Christ's coming. It is one of the purposes of Christ's incarnation. So I want to ask you this question. Pause here for a few moments and ask you, how would you describe your relationship with God the Father? Right? If, you're, if you got paper and pen in handy, you could write it down. Or you could use in your mind, write some adjectives to describe, not idyllically, you know, not, not mixing memory and desire, not what you hope or want it to be. But in a realistic way, how would you describe your relationship with the Father? Maybe if you're married, a good question would be on your drive home. How would you, ask your wife or husband, how would you describe my relationship with with God? You know me, you know my Christian walk. How would you describe my Christian relationship with the Father? Is it cold? Would that be a word you would use? Distant? Fearful? Formal, uncomfortable, or empty? Would you use those adjectives? Or would you use adjectives like Abba Father? He's my daddy, right? I heard like, you know, Kevin Durant's mom calls him in the locker room and he, you know, he says, Mommy. Right, over the phone to his mom, and all his uh, teammates laugh and mock him. How old are you, man? Calling your mom mommy. He's unashamed. She's my mommy, right? Well, is, is God daddy to you? Is he Abba Father? Would you use intimate, personal, right? loving, caring, heartfelt, Involved, 
faithful, would you use those adjectives? The adjectives you use say more about your Christian life than anything else, right? What, how you describe your walk, really that is your Christian life. And that's not my opinion, you know, what, what is my opinion worth? Therefore, I need to quote someone with more weightier opinion, where his opinion really matters, and that's J.I. Packer. He wrote in his book, Knowing God, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So because it is a, is a relationship, no matter how much you know, how much you've studied, how many times you've read the Bible, how long you've been a Christian, if your worship of God, your relationship, your prayer to God, your walk with God is not informed by his fatherhood and you as a child, then no matter what you say, you don't know Christianity very well at all. This truth that we are children of God is the heart of the Christian faith. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. Twice in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, we will study this in two weeks. That is why God sent the Spirit. God wanted to redeem us. God sent the Son to adopt us. And God sent the Holy Spirit to his sons to make us aware of his fatherhood, of our adoption, of being sons of God through faith, whereby we have this relationship with God, not by works, not through effort, not through achievement, not through outward righteousness. We've been given this relationship by grace through faith alone. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit to make us aware of what we already have. And yet if we resist the Holy Spirit, we harden our hearts to the Holy Spirit, we grieve the Holy Spirit, and we reject this reality, then we are still acting as um, with this spirit of slavery that we used to have, Romans 8.15. We have the spirit of orphans, John 16. Although we are believers, we act like we're not part of the family. Um, Sinclair Ferguson talked about in his book, The Parable of the Prodigal Sons. And he illustrates there in his book, Children of the Living God, how 
both sons um, experienced what Paul called the spirit of slavery, Romans 8.15, both sons. This, this, uh, this spirit of uh, orphans, of being not members of God's household. The younger son modeled or experienced this spirit of slavery when he was coming back from that distant country. He, uh, his internal monologue was, and what he said to the father was, I don't deserve to be your son. Make me a hired hand. Make me a slave. And so that is, that is our, our hearts. I mean, every day, that is my heart. Because of our sinfulness, because of our weaknesses, because we're such failures, because we're so selfish and sinful, and the Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, makes us aware of our sinfulness, we approach God, and we are so broken down, we say, I don't deserve this family. I don't deserve your love. I don't deserve this grace. I don't deserve you as my father. Allow me some dignity. Allow me some room for pride. Let me stand on my own two feet. Hire me out as a slave. Make me a servant. That's the spirit of slavery that's in all of us. And yet when the father ran to the prodigal son, and when he runs to us, what does he say? He says, bring the best robe. Put it on my son. Bring the singlet ring of my family and put it on him. Bring, put shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. This is what the father says every time we go to him. For my son was dead, is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Ferguson said in his book, Although this story is probably the best known and loved of all of Christ's parables, the lesson it teaches us as Christians is often overlooked. Jesus was underlining the fact that despite assumptions to the contrary, the reality of the love of God for us is often the last thing in the world to dawn upon us. As we fix our eyes on ourselves, our past failures, our present guilt, it seems impossible to us that the Father could love us. Many Christians go through much of their life with the prodigal's suspicion. Their concentration is upon their own sin and failure. All their thoughts are introspective. Because they are fixated on themselves. Their heart cry is not Abba Father. Their heart cry is Master. Hire me out as a slave. Right, keep me at a distance. Right, I don't deserve your love. Let me just work for you as an employee. Because I can't take my eyes off of how sinful I am. Now the younger son says, I don't deserve your love. The older son, the elder son, is in a worse condition, right? The younger son is geographically far away, 
But at the instant when he saw the pigs, his heart was close. The elder son, geographically he was close, but his heart was in a distant country. His heart was in another universe. Younger son said, I don't deserve your love. The older son, what he was saying is, I deserve your love, but you don't love me. I deserve your love, but you don't love me. Luke 15, 29. Look, he said to his father. It's a command. Look, all these years I've slaved for you, never disobeyed you, and you never. I'm just going to stop right there, and you never. He's saying, look at all my works. Look at all my goodness, my righteousness, my obedience, and you've never expressed your love for me. I deserve your love, but you don't love me. I'm good, but you are unloving. This is far worse. Contrast um, the older son's spirit of slavery with Apostle John's spirit of sonship. The older brother says, look at me. Look at my obedience. Look at my righteousness. Apostle John in 1 John 3, 1 says, behold, look. Behold what manner of love that the Father has given us that we should be called sons of God. The older brother says, look at me. In relation to others, I deserve your love and you don't love me. The Bible says, no, look at the Father and his love. Behold, consider, be amazed that we who are enemies of God should be called sons of God. I want to bring this home. Um, apply it to our hearts, let it marinate in our hearts uh, so that it would help us to remember the cross in communion. We're going to go directly into communion with these uh, closing thoughts. Um, You know, one of my um, mentors in the faith is a man named Jack Miller. He's got a, a book called The Heart of a Servant Leader, um, these are letters that he wrote to members of his congregation, fellow pastors and missionaries. This is a book I take out and I read often. Such encouragement, spiritual encouragement uh, uh, that are, are in, in these pages. He began a ministry called World Harvest Mission and they bought teaching on sonship and him and his wife, Rosemary, have a, have a diagram, a chart, contrasting. He calls it the spirit of orphans, and I, I would say spirit of slavery. Same thing. At Romans 8.15, we fall back to a spirit of slavery, which causes us to fear. When we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, when we cry out, Abba, Father. And he uh, has these two diagrams. This diagram contrasting the mindset uh, between these two, there are nine of them. Share them with you, and we'll go straight into communion. We're going to run to the Father. 
and I ask the Spirit to make us aware of our sonship. The first difference is the spirit of slavery, an orphan, feels alone. Lack of vital daily intimacy with God. He or she is full of self-concern. The spirit of sonship has a growing assurance that God is really my loving father. Spirit of slavery, anxious over felt needs, relationships, money, and health. Internal monologue is, I'm all alone. Nobody cares for me. No no one has my back. I have no one to rely on, no one to trust in. I'm I'm, I'm not happy. The spirit of sonship trusts the father and has a growing confidence in his loving care. He's my father. He cares for birds. He cares for flowers. How much more does he care for me? He's freed up from worry. The spirit of slavery lives on a succeed-fail basis, needs to look good and be right, is performance-oriented. The spirit of sonship learns to, is learning to live in daily conscious partnership with God. It's not faithful. The spirit of slavery feels condemned, guilty, and unworthy before God and others. The spirit of sonship feels loved, forgiven, totally accepted because Christ's merit really clothes him. The spirit of slavery has little faith, lots of fear, lots of faith in himself. I've got to fix this. I've got to work on this. I've got to figure this out and solve this. Spirit of sonship has a daily working trust in God's sovereign plan for his or her life as loving, wise, and best believes that God is good. The spirit of slavery labors under a sense of unlimited obligation. Tries too hard to please God and others, therefore burns out. Spirit of sonship. Prayer is the first resort. I'm going to ask my daddy first. Cries out, Abba, Father. The spirit of slavery is rebellious. Resists authority. Heart is hard. Is not easily teachable. Spirit of sonship has strength to be submissive. Has a soft, broken, and contrite heart. Therefore, is teachable. The spirit of slavery of an orphan is defensive. Can't, doesn't listen well. Bristles at the charge of being self-righteous. Thus proving that point, the spirit of sonship is open to criticism since he or she consciously stands in Christ's perfect righteousness, not his or her own, therefore is able to examine one's own unbelief. Four more, the spirit of slavery needs to be right. right? Has to be right, has to be safe and secure, unwilling to fail, unable to tolerate criticism, can only handle praise. The spirit of sonship is able to take risks and even fail. Since his righteousness is in Christ, needs no record to boast in, protect, or defend. The spirit of slavery is excessively self-confident or self-loathing. 
often discouraged, defeated, lacks spiritual power, spirit of sonship. He is confident in Christ and encouraged because of the Holy Spirit's work. Spirit of slavery tends towards an I-can-do-it-myself attitude. A strong will is driven. The spirit of sonship, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The spirit of slavery, unbelieving effort, relies only on his gifts to get by in ministry. The spirit of sonship, trusting less in self and more in the Holy Spirit, a daily conscious reliance. Which spirit is in your heart? The Bible is clear. Our experience is clear. Our physical birth, we were entirely passive in our birth. We were entirely passive. Likewise, in our spiritual birth, we are entirely passive. And in our sonship before God, our relationship with God the Father is passive as well. It's not works, but it's faith. Likewise with the Lord's table. I believe this is why the Lord chose the Lord's table as a reminder of his death, resurrection, ascension, and his imminent return. Because eating and drinking is passive. Tasting, involuntary, is a passive experience. Remembering is a passive experience. And thus, we are reminded of how the Spirit works. That our Christian life is not by that S called self-control. Our Christian lives is by that S called spirit control. It's the Spirit's work that makes us aware of our new relationship with God as our Father this time, we're going to uh, transition into our Lord's table. Um, we're going to um, sing three songs. We'll go right into singing. We, we have a special presentation for the first song. So we ask you, first time, just listen to these words. Um, May it be the gospel being sung to you. Second time, we ask if you want to sing along. And it is you singing the gospel to yourself and singing the gospel to one another. During the second song, we ask you, anytime during that time, even towards the start of the third song, as you, as you desire to go and take the elements there at the back of the room, also to my right as well. Again, it is for believers only. If you're not a Christian, we are thankful that you are here. You're welcome here. Uh, And we have a communion meal this afternoon. You're welcome to dine with us. But the Lord's table is for family only. It's only for brothers and sisters in Christ. Only for children of God. 
we ask that you would just observe and you would just be blessed by seeing uh, this practiced in our, in our spiritual family. If you are believers, confess your need for God and go to the Father and receive uh, the cross, receive the gospel that he has given to you by taking the elements.